0: everyone thanks for joining us today on ceai's apartment investing podcast my name is lydia kincaid i'm the managing director for ceai fund 23 and fund 24 and we have lee harris our president and ceo as well as ryan huffman our chief operating officer So we've spent some time talking about past successes and things that we've learned. Uh, We wanna talk specifically about one property that we sold this year, actually called the Grove at Trinity Point, um, and it was in the Memphis area. We delivered a 15.88% IRR to our Fund 23 investors. Um, But for this episode, to take a little bit different spin on things, we're gonna talk about some lessons learned, some things that we did well, some things that maybe we could have done differently um, to deliver an even higher return next time around for our investors. Um, so maybe Ryan, if you could start talking about the Grove as a property, um, what we liked about it from the beginning and why we were interested in acquiring it.
1: Yeah, I'll absolutely do that. So um, the Grove at Trinity Point was located in Cordova, Tennessee, which is actually a suburb of Memphis. Um, Lydia, you said Memphis, it's, you know, similar to anything, Kansas City, be Overland Park, if you want to equate those, but It was 464 units, garden-style community built in 1986. And, you know, Memphis actually has a great story. Um, It's, you know, number five best city to start a business by Wallet Hub. It's got 20% population growth over over the last 14 years. And this kind of Cordova, it's also FedEx's headquarters, by the way. Um, So it's got a lot of positives going for it. And this kind of Cordova, Germantown, Collierville area um is really the white collar high growth area of memphis and we liked the location it was on a main thoroughfare great unit count it was our first entry into memphis so for us having that 464 units was was a great experience and so our investment plan was an interior plan now interestingly when you're dealing with 80s product you can't do everything at least in our model Um, and so we picked an interior plan here primarily. And so we had a $3,500 unit spend, 1.6 million plus to do unit interiors and and lift rents by about $125 a month. So that was our investment thesis going in. Um, From a capital stack standpoint, I'm going to toss it to Lee to talk about some of these topics, but we of course did a loan assumption, which we've talked about in the past. That's been an area where we have been able to really see some value is by assuming in-place loans, you get a bit of a discount on pricing. Um, and, you know, the loans are still in, in decent shape and have some runway. One of the things we added here, which we talked about in the last, but we'll hit it again for those of you that didn't see our last podcast, is we had a, a equity piece with Fundrise again, um, and that's a crowdfunder. So Lee, you want to take a couple minutes and just talk a little bit about the crowdfunding concept here and generally how it works so we can kind of repeat what we talked about in the last one, because this is only our second deal. We only did two deals with with crowdfunding so far.
2: Yes, and the crowdfunding uh, trend has become quite pronounced in recent years. Fundrise was one of the early uh, entrants into that market space uh, based in Washington, D.C. Uh, In fact, I remember visiting them uh, early on uh, on DuPont Circle and In the upstairs of an old historic building. And I walked up those rickety steps, and uh, there in about 3,500 to 4,000 square feet were uh, tables and chairs and computer monitors. A big dog that was uh, barking at me as I got to the top of the stairs. I think the dog must have been their security guard. Everybody had to have been under 30 years of age, and they were working the phones, raising uh, co investment equity. Uh, through the crowdfunding. And I believe at the time, their average check size may have been somewhere in the range of $3,500. And they were raising money from thousands and thousands of people, uh, accredited investors, uh, but uh, they were in the early stages of their corporate growth. And we were happy to partner with them. They had a, a a structure where Uh, you had to pay a certain uh, interest rate and then a a component would also accrue. And Ryan, if I remember correctly, it uh, it was a must pay of what, nine and a half or 10%, something like that. And then accrual of 12 or 12 and a half percent. And we always made sure we paid the full amount, the 12 and a half percent. Now that may sound like expensive capital, but if you think about it, uh, if your uh, return stops at twelve and a half percent, that leaves that much more money, that much more in in the way of return that you can spread among your other investors. <clears throat> so while <clears throat> the uh, the true equity capital is the most expensive capital in a, a stack like capital stack like this, uh, the preferred equity uh, that that was Provided by Fundrise was reasonably priced. Some might call it mezz equity, mezzanine equity, uh, but it was uh, an integral part of our of our capital stack. And was that for about five million dollars, Ryan? I can't remember it's the three
1: point seven enough. five <laughs> on three point five 3. on Sandtown, but 3.75 okay. here.
2: Okay. So anyway, that was uh, a piece of of the stack. We also had uh, a. And other tenants in common, we had friends that had sold a portfolio of properties that uh, needed a 1031 exchange, and we were able to accommodate them through an undivided tenants in common interest. It was, again, I think in the 17, 18, 19% range of of the total ownership package. And so they were effectively our partners in this as well. Um, And then you can talk about the rest of of the capital stack, Ryan.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much the, the total capital stack that we had. It ended up being about a $35,500,000 transaction. So we, of course, had our fund equity, our 90-10 structure uh, with our primary equity provider. Um, that all came out to be roughly about 20% of the equity, which in addition to the tick equity and the the fundraise piece um, made for a pretty attractive capital stack. And you know, this was a deal that, you know, I always say there's home runs, which everybody has. And then sometimes you have to take a base hit and grow for us was we classify as a base hit. It produced a good return. um, But it also just frankly didn't perform to our expectations. And there's a number of lessons that we learned along the way that have helped us refine our process even more over time so that we can can do that. So, What what happened here? Well, we got into it and even though they had tested the upgrades on the property, um, they hadn't been widespread. And so one of the first things we discovered was that a widespread renovation plan here, we weren't getting the kind of pop we thought we were gonna be able to command. Um, It wasn't horrible. It was 75 or $80, but like we said, we wanted 125. So we kind of had to step back and retool a little bit. You know, you could just plow forward Um, But we had to kind of reallocate our capital stack a bit um, to uh, account for that. The other lesson learned here, and this is really just fundamental as you guys are looking at property, is, you know, 1980s construction, if you think about it, is, you know, back then about 30 years old. And so we do a very thorough due diligence. We still miss some things that we should have probably caught during that process. And so we were able to correct them with some of the capital. But in hindsight, we really can boost up that process. So everybody that's looking at property, I definitely will tell you, we always do a 100% property audit, meaning we walk all of the units. There's a lot of guys now that are trying to walk 20 or 25% and just assume that what it's, look like, what, it, what it's going to be. We definitely don't do that. We didn't do that here either, by the way. We do a 100% file audit. We, we now do things like we have an engineering inspection done. We bring in a roof engineer to look at roofing. Um, just to make sure you have a full picture of what you have to do so that you're not in the deal and having to make changes real fast as you go. This one was one where staffing, staffing, staffing just was one of those things that we tended to battle a lot. Um, We we did have good teams. We'd have some folks leave. We'd have another good team come in, but but we needed that stability. And What was really interesting here is we finally found the stability the last two years of ownership where we had a great assistant manager that was able to collect rent and Kenya was awesome and she left for a minute and then she actually came back as the manager and and really kind of hit the ball out of the park, so to speak, the last call it 18 months of our ownership. And so, you know, that's one where it was unique to Memphis. It was unique to this where this particular property in Memphis, that staffing just We couldn't quite get where we wanted to go. We have two other properties in Memphis that are doing phenomenal, that have stable staff, that have been there for years, that are performing phenomenally. And in fact, Lee, you brought up one of the properties is only three miles away from Grove. So, you know, we never kind of figured out exactly why that turnstile happened, but we finally found the right folks through a more rigorous interview process. you know, Ron, let,
2: let me jump in here, too, and, and and emphasize the point that you're making. The on-site property manager makes or breaks an investment. Absolutely. I mean, uh, and and we've known that forever. So we've been doing this for 51 years. So we we have seen this uh, countless times where property struggles and struggles and goes through a succession of on-site managers. And then voila, here's a manager that that uh, rolls up his or her sleeves and, and does a bang up job. And all of a sudden, all the problems we were encountering previously are, are evaporating and, and the property turns the corner and, and does exceptionally well. And as you, as you stated, uh, we had the assistant manager that left briefly and came back as the manager and was very strong and, and helped bring the property to the point that it was uh, in great demand by the marketplace both in terms of rentals and in terms of of buyers, purchasers. Uh, But it was a lot of head scratching that that went on. And we do a very thorough vetting of of, uh, prospects for the property manager position, as we do for all positions. And one of the things we do is look at a caliper profile, which is a psychological profile that we uh, administer. And uh, it's one of the tools in the toolkit and even in spite of doing that, we had some, uh, some, some struggles finding just that right person. So we can't emphasize enough uh, how critical that on-site person is that, that the, uh, that, that's running the corner store, so to speak.
1: Yep. And I would say the last thing we learned, and, and this one to me is critical as, as technology is becoming huge in this industry we have deployed on most of our portfolio Yieldstar, which for those of you that aren't familiar with Yieldstar, it's on demand pricing. So similar to hotel softwares and airline softwares where the higher the occupancy, it starts really pushing rents. Um, It's got an algorithm that looks at competitive sets and all kinds of things. We have had great success with Yieldstar across the system. What's really interesting is this particular property, we left it in place for a year And it just didn't move the rents like it did on the rest of the portfolio. And we ended up saying, let's take the property off Yieldstar. And this is the critical part of this conversation. And we took it off, we boosted the rents, and we had, I think, three total boosts between taking it off and taking it to market. Just us intuitively working with the team on site. My point in that is all of us have a platform and you can't be afraid to downshift and maybe take a module or something that is working on your platform everywhere else. But if it's not working on a particular property, don't be afraid to take it off and give it a whirl. It worked out great here for us to do that. That's not a knock against Yieldstar, whether it was the property, whether it was the submarket, I can't tell you because again, Appling Lakes is on Yieldstar right down the road and it's performing very well with, with huge increases. So it was just a function of this particular deal that 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 just didn't work there. And so we took it off and actually saw pretty decent revenue lift after. So a few lessons learned on this particular deal that you know, had we maybe moved differently in the beginning, we could have ha- had an even better return than we have, even though we had a very healthy return
2: here. Yeah, and I think too, the physical condition of the property built built in 1985, 1986. Uh, One of the things that attracted us to the property was that it was built and developed by Trammell Crow, uh, which has a pretty good reputation and has done a nice job with its product over the years. Uh, So we had some comfort there Uh, and it's a lot of trees and and a big lake and water features. It was a very attractive property, Uh, but we found a, a second swimming pool we never could figure out. Uh, if, if I recall, Ryan, the, the leaking issue uh, and spent thousands of dollars trying to, to figure that out. We had issues with the, the gates. It was a gated community and people were constantly running into the gates and knocking them offline. And, and we spent a lot of money there. Uh, some of this, maybe with a bit deeper due diligence and, and inspection, we might have realized uh. But probably what lesson learned Spend a bit more capital on, on the exterior issues that we were encountering. And uh, you, you've become much more robust with the due diligence team and the due diligence process so that we do allocate the dollars uh, more appropriately, I think.
1: I agree. And I think you know, our, our overall message on this one is learn, right? You, you got to continually learn. Um, because you can think you're going down the right path and, and every asset, we have a post-mortem on the property. What did we do well? What should we do different? And, and it's constant learning and constant refinement. And it doesn't mean that keeps us from getting static and just trying to cookie cut everything and fit a, a square peg into a round hole, so to speak. Um, but this is a really good example of learn. Learn from what happened and Bob and Weave and you can still produce a good return and get the base hit. By learning what through the asset what you're doing right and wrong yeah
0: ryan something else um, that hasn't come up yet but was certainly a part of this and our ongoing strategy is the nps or net promoter score i think that really helps our property managers and our team get a closer pulse check on the properties they can see you know in real time what the resident's satisfaction level is with their interaction with the property management team as they go through their experiences with them and that if I'm remembering our timeline correctly, that wasn't in place right when we acquired Grove. It was about midway through that we started instituting that as a company. Um, And we've really placed a greater emphasis on that over time as well. So I think that is maybe more globally um, a lesson learned that we've applied to the whole portfolio now that I think really helps each property grow and get better.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that.
2: Lydia, you might uh, spend a minute and uh, explain to folks what we do from a reporting standpoint. Uh, with respect to our investors, the quarterly uh, report and annual report. And in particular, you might talk about how we classify the different properties in the portfolio uh, and how they perform.
0: Sure. So each quarter we send our investors um, a report that's pretty robust. We look at each property individually, but we also provide a bigger picture of what's going on in the market or the portfolio as a whole, but Lee mentioned the different categories. We have three categories that we place properties in. We have the top category, exceeding expectations, and then meeting expectations is that middle ground property properties performing as expected, um, and then lagging. And Um, We do put properties in that lagging category. We want to be transparent with our investors when properties are behind plan and why and what we've put in place to make improvements. Um, It's always nice to see those properties improve, though, and go from lagging to meeting expectations to exceeding expectations. So that's always great, I know, for investors to see and for us to see with the team here. Um, But Grove did struggle over time. And I don't think any of our investors would be surprised um, if they'd been following our investor reports and read what we had to say. Um, as Ryan said, it really was performing better and better and better in those last 18 months to two years. Um, so we were able to implement changes, um, especially with that property management team. They did really good things on site there. Um, but that was one that I think it was just, it, it was what it was. Um, and we were honest with investors all along.
2: Yeah, I think that uh, when we're talking about portfolios, Mm -hmm. uh, Fund 23 had, what, 13 properties, I believe, in that portfolio. We've now sold three of them. Um, And we always know we're going to have some that outperform. We're going to have a good chunk of them that perform just exactly the way we had hoped. And there will be a laggard or two. And uh, somebody might say, well, at a 15.88% return to the investors how would you consider that to be a laggard and we set very high standards and in this particular case we had higher expectations for this asset by no means is is this a failure i mean i don't want this to be a debbie downer kind of podcast uh we're being transparent here and we wish we would have done better but by any standard 15.88, almost 16% is a good, good, uh, good return for, for the investment capital that uh, was deployed. But still uh, we thought that it would be a good idea today to, to share uh, a, a current experience that we had that were, where we wish that uh, we could have uh, put this property in the uh, exceeding expectation category.
0: But you're rightly, this ended up being still a great return for our investors. Um, but we do set high standards and we're constantly looking for ways to improve. So, with that, as always, we appreciate you tuning in um, to this episode of our apartment investing podcast. Until next time. Thanks.